I am uh, Brendan. I am a pastoral intern here at King of Grace Church, and it is my uh, privilege today to uh, share God's Word with you. And uh, just before we get started, I just want to tell you a story. Um, If you could bring up the slides here. All right. So this man that you see before you, his name is Tsutomo Yamaguchi, and he was an engineer working for uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries uh, in Japan uh, in the year 1945. And in the summer of that year, uh, he was on a business trip to the uh, city of Hiroshima and was scheduled to leave on August 6th to return to his hometown. He'd been on a three-month stay and uh, was just getting ready to leave, and he was at the train station Uh, when he realized he had forgotten his ID at his work, and he worked down in the docks. And so he decided, you know, I'm just going to quickly grab that so I can get on the train. And so uh, as he was walking to the docks, he uh, heard a a sound uh, up above, the sound of a plane. And uh, he looked up, and the next thing he saw was a blinding white light. And he was then thrown... um, by the shock wave of a nuclear bomb uh, and severely injured. He had burns all over his body. Uh, He suffered temporary blindness um, as well as uh, having his eardrums ruptured. Uh, So very injured. He was at uh, just a few miles away from ground zero for the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Uh, But thankfully he was able, even in his injured state, he was able to find shelter and actually was able to meet up with his colleagues that he was going to um, go home with. And so they spent the night in an air raid shelter um, and were actually able to return home the next day. And so for the next few days, he was in the hospital. And uh, uh, even though he had severe injuries, he had burns, he actually was feeling well enough to go to work um, on August 9th. And so... uh, you know, miraculously, he, he goes to work, and he's in the office, and uh, he has his back to the window, and he's speaking to his boss. He's telling him about just what happened, this massive explosion, just the devastation. And as he's telling his boss this, all of a sudden, the room fills with that same blinding white light. You see, Mr. Yamaguchi was in Nagasaki, and happened to again be just a few miles away from the epicenter of that second atomic bombing. Uh, Even more miraculously than the first uh, uh, bombing, he actually survived this as well and was uninjured and uh, managed to to live a productive life. I think he died in 2000, was a writer, was an anti-nuclear activist. So why do I tell you this story, this uh, extremely miraculous and uh, unpredictable, who, who would have guessed something like this would happen, surviving not just one but two nuclear bombs? Now the reason for sharing this is that it points to the fact that life is unpredictable, life is uncertain. Now we may not have gotten up in the morning and been the victim of a nuclear bomb, Uh, and certainly not two, but we can understand that life is uncertain. We can understand that we can't predict what's going to happen. This year, um, as we heard in last uh, sermon, this is really the part two uh, of that, um, you know, who could have predicted the coronavirus? 
Who uh, could have predicted uh, civil unrest, attacks on the capital? Who could have predicted uh, job loss and just all of the problems that we faced in the last year? What, what can we do? We live in this reality of uncertainty, of unpredictability. And so in the face of this uncertainty, in the face of this unpredictability, um, we're going to find that God's word has a wise path for us to walk in. Uh, it doesn't give us the answers of what outcome we're going to have day to day, but it does give us hope. It gives us practical advice on how to live our lives. And so that is what we are going to see in today's passage in Ecclesiastes 10, 16 through 11, 6. Um, and I'm just going to pray for us if you want to turn in your Bibles. And uh, certainly if you need a Bible, there are some uh, back in the Judson room for you. Um, and I'll just pray for us as you're turning there. Lord, thank you so much just for, Lord, just the privilege of uh, your word, Lord, just the privilege of hearing your word and uh, sharing your word, God. And I just pray that ultimately it would be your word that is being spoken, uh, that ultimately it would be your truths that are shared, Lord, and that we would be encouraged to live wisely, uh, Lord, that we would be uh, encouraged to uh, not fear the uncertainty of life, Lord, but to trust the certainty of our good and great God. And so, Lord, just be with us today as we hear your word. Ask that in Christ's name. Amen. So, Ecclesiastes 10, 16 through eleven six. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, not for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or eight, or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. The word of the Lord. Now, Diving into this passage, uh, again, this is sort of part two of, of last week's sermon, part two of, of dealing with uncertainty, dealing with uh, what the, the teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes calls just this hevel life, this vaporous, uncertain life that we live. And so this first uh, bit that we're going to be seeing is he's going to be talking about uncertainty in, in the political realm, in the, the realm of government, in the realm of the state. And so the passage starts with a, a lament or a dirge, just saying, woe to you, this is a bad thing. 
if the king is a child. Now, it's not unheard of in history for a king or a ruler to actually be a child. So uh, uh, Tutankhamun, the, the famous pharaoh, um, he was only nine years old when he ascended to the throne. Uh, so this is, has precedent. But the writer isn't really pointing out specifically, literally, if your, uh, your king is a child. Um, what he's getting at here is, is what are the characteristics of a child? It's someone who is immature. It's someone who lacks experience and wisdom, perhaps the temperament um, and the ability to lead. And so if this is the person who is the leader of your land, then that is putting you in a really bad spot. And it's not just the uh, king who uh, is maybe unfit to lead, but we also see that the princes um, are also unfit. And the way that we know they're unfit is it says that they feast in the morning. Now, before anyone panics and thinks that eating breakfast is sinful, I can assure you it is not. <laughs> uh, uh, what he's getting at here and what we're going to kind of see the contrast going into the next verse is that feasting in the morning is just feasting at the wrong time. It's lacking self-control. It's lacking um, the wisdom to do things at the appropriate time. And so a land uh, whose king is childish and intemperate and whose princes lack self-control is a land that is in trouble. On the flip side, a land that has a noble uh, or a, a son of nobility as a king is in a good spot. And here, you know, we have to keep in uh, just the context of when this is written. Um, this isn't meant to be just elitist. So, you know, someone who's nobility, who's an elite, um, everything's all well and good. Um, the point of, of speaking of nobility is this is a person who uh, is an adult in their attitude, in their character. This is a person who is well-suited, who's been trained, who has the self-control for the job at hand. And again, this is reflected just as there's a negative reflection in the princes of the child king, there's a positive reflection in the princes of the noble king. For you see, these princes don't feast uh, at any point. They don't lack self-control. They feast at the proper time. They uh, exhibit self-control, and they're not eating to, to carouse. They're not eating to get drunk. Um, uh, they're eating for strength, for the uh, uh, necessary fuel to do the job that they need to do. And so that is the positive. That is uh, a land that has a king and a prince with self-control, with temperance, with maturity. That is a good thing. And so right now, uh, you know, the, the writer is just stating facts. Bad king's bad. Good king's good. Great. <laughs> Very simple. We can all understand. Uh, but as he continues, he's going to just, uh, just tighten up this whole idea of, of what a negative leader is. And, and part of the reason why he's alternating between this and, and not really saying, he's not addressing this, he's not saying, you know, if you're the king and you're childish, you know, you got to grow up, you got to stop. Uh, and he's not saying to the king, you know, you're doing a great job, you know, high five. He's not addressing this to them. He's merely stating facts, and he's stating that there are cases where there are bad kings, and there are cases where there are good, thing, uh, good kings. There's an uncertainty, there's a 
unpredictability of when these kings will arise. And just focusing on that negative point here in verse 18, he just adds a little bit of another problem with these poor kings, and that is a lack of diligence. So through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Um, Now, he's not just transitioning to randomly talking about home repairs or anything like that. Um, You know, the idea of a house that can be, of course, a building, um, but that can also be referenced to a house, a house of uh, nobility, the leadership caste of society. And so through laziness, through inattention, um, that house, that uh, leadership, that uh, group can collapse. It can run into issues. And so uh, in addition to these poor uh, child kings and princes um, lacking self-control, they also lack work ethic. They lack diligence. And so this is going to cause problems. This is going to affect the house, the land, what have you. And so again, uh, the writer is just pointing out that these are the realities of life, uh, that you can have good kings, you can have bad kings, you can have self-control, you can have a lack of self-control. And there's no magic formula of how you arrive at either of those. Um, He's just stating facts to the reader. And these really are facts because we see this in, in real life. We see examples of great leaders who... Uh, exhibit self-control, who are wise, who are mature. Uh, But we also see examples of leaders who are petulant, who are childish. Um, And I think a great example of that is um, our former president, Richard Nixon. Um, We all know Richard Nixon from Watergate. Um, Definitely a huge scandal, had to resign. Um, But Richard Nixon also had some other issues temperamentally, behaviorally, that made him unfit for uh, the office and the leadership that he had. So in addition to, you know, clearly corruption and Watergate, he actually was a very heavy drinker, um, and he also used and abused psychoactive drugs uh, for anxiety and sleeping and had a very, very vicious temper. So aides recount numerous times of expletive-filled tirades and demands to fire people, um, Uh, There was one point where he was too drunk to speak to the Prime Minister of the UK. Um, And a really particularly troubling uh, incident with North Korea. Um, So in 1969, this plane that you're seeing, that's an American EC-121 spy plane. Um, And we had, you know, planes, you know, all during the Cold War and still now, um, you know, getting reconnaissance, getting intelligence um, on uh, our foreign adversaries. And in 1969, North Korea actually shot one of these planes down uh, over the the Sea of Japan. And uh, during this time, just a few hours after this plane was shot down, uh, there was an American airman uh, based in uh, South Korea named Bruce Charles. And he was summoned in front of his commanding officer. And he was told that he had to be on alert uh, to drop uh, a bomb on a North Korean airfield. Uh, and not just any bomb, but a nuclear bomb, uh, that he was <laughs> prepped and ready uh, to start World War III and engage in uh, nuclear warfare. 
And it turns out that uh, the order for this, that the uh, idea of this came from a drunk Richard Nixon calling the Joint Chiefs of Staff absolutely furious um, and demanding that we launch a nuclear strike on North Korea. Uh, thankfully, his um, uh, National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, called the Joint Chiefs uh, just a little while after and said, hey guys, Nixon's not doing so hot right now. Why don't we just wait till the morning and see how he feels? <laughs> Thankfully, uh, <laughs> nuclear war didn't happen. We are all here. Um, but uh, this example is just meant to reinforce uh, that idea that the, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes is getting at. One is that poor leadership can result in poor consequences, that a... Um, a, a nation whose leader is not in self-control or doesn't have self-control um, is bad. But also that there is just uncertainty with this. Um, he's not saying this is how you get a good leader, this is how you get a bad leader. He's just merely stating facts that in reality we're going to experience times in the political and uh, state realm where we have good leadership and we have poor leadership. And so that naturally brings up the question, so what do we do? Is this uh, just an informational piece for, for something we all obviously understand, that there are good leaders and bad leaders? What is it that the writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand? And so the writer here offers two pieces of advice, and the first one doesn't really seem like a piece of advice. It's more an implicit uh, and then the latter is very explicit, uh, but you'll see that they, they merge together and they, they make sense as a unit. And so talking about uh, a lack of diligence in leadership, um, he transitions and just says, you know what, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Seems like a very abrupt transition. I guess we <laughs> all better just eat and drink and not care about the consequences. Um, but that's not I exactly what he's saying here. In the face of good leadership or bad leadership, in the face of political um, uncertainty, uh, his answer is focusing, as we've heard many refrains from the writer as we've gone through this, to focus on those gifts of God that we do have, that I may not be able to control uh, what the president or, or the king or whoever does, but I can enjoy these things that God has given. We can enjoy the gifts of food. We can enjoy the gifts of drink. And as far as the money piece, uh, just slide the guy there, that's not saying that money literally answers everything and we just, just get money and everything will be fine. But in the context, you know, if you need bread and drink, you need money. That's just a reality. Um, and so he's just pointing out that reality. And so in the midst of uncertainty, one thing that we can do is just enjoy the things that God has given. We're not in full control of everything that happens. Certainly not once we get to the, the top tiers of government or the state. Um, we're not in control of that, but we can control, we can enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Now, the second piece, now this is an explicit command, um, is he says, you know, obviously referencing back to, you know, the idea of political uncertainty and uh, poor leadership, 
He says, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. Don't criticize him. And definitely don't, uh, even in your bedroom, criticize the rich, the powerful. Um, For a bird may come and uh, tell them about it or some other winged creature. Um, So it seems like he's saying, just keep your mouth shut. Don't don't criticize anyone. Don't do anything. Um, And I think we, again, have to understand the context. So... This is back, you know, 3,000 years ago. Um, The writer of Ecclesiastes is living in a time where the king really does wield complete authority. Um, And the reality is talking about, you know, birds or winged creatures, that's really a reference to, to spies, to people listening to what you're saying. I think of even modern examples like in East Germany uh, under communism, um, you had the secret police who would often be listening into conversations, who would be spying on you. And he's just pointing out a reality. This is, this is the truth of, of what can happen. What you say, especially as you're talking about um, leadership, there can be consequences of that. There can be consequences of what you say. And so at times it's better just not to say anything. But with that... With this being said, it, it seems like these bits of advice he's giving are just very counterintuitive, just very, uh, you know, even as I read this, I'm like, huh, not what I would have said. Of course, I'm not God, thank God. Uh, <laughs> but I, I really thought uh, of it through the lens of, you know, someone of my generation, you know, millennials, whatever we are, you know, tend to be very activists, tend to be, have a very strong bent towards action and activity. And I can imagine someone just saying, in response to these bits of advice, what, what, do, you, what do you want me to do? What, I see injustice in the world, I see immorality, you want me to just stay home and just eat pizza? You know, instead of criticizing people, you just want me to keep my mouth shut and just go around just living my life as a drone? Is that really what the Bible's telling me to do? Is that really what's right? And so I can imagine very, very viscerally, partially because that's what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, but I think what this passage is getting at, again, we've got this context of uncertainty, uncertainty in the political realm, is it's really teaching us to take stock, to take stock of what we actually have control over and to take stock of how we can live wisely, how we can speak wisely in the face of political uncertainty. So for that first bit, just speaking about eating and drinking and enjoying, I think what this would speak to that young person, maybe to me, is that this isn't a command to quietism or to apathy. I mean, if we think about it, Jesus was not apathetic. towards uh, these things. John the Baptist wasn't. John the Baptist, um, uh, you know, called out Herod for uh, marrying his brother's wife. Uh, Jesus called Herod an old fox uh, and certainly confronted the leadership class of uh, ancient Judea um, for their sins against the Lord. So, So what is this getting at? And I think what it's getting at is again, that we are not in control, that these things are uncertain, and that sometimes we just have to realize that and enjoy those things that God has given us, that 
we are not meant for 100% activity, outrage, um, or anything else, but that we have to, in the face of uncertainty, realize we can't change everything. You know, so many uh, uh, books and movies, you know, aim towards young adults. There's always this one hero who just changes the whole world, who's super special and does everything. But the reality is, is that's not really any of us. Uh, we're all just uh, people living with the circumstances that God has given us. And the one person who truly was that hero, the one person who truly did and does change the world, Jesus, he himself lived this way. He lived in a way that he enjoyed the good, certain things that God had given to him. I think about in Luke 7.34, Jesus is explaining to the crowd the difference between himself and John the Baptist. And one of the things he says is, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was the man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. No man on earth has ever been more aware of, more concerned about, uh, more heartbroken over the issues of the world, and certainly more aware of the precariousness of our lives. Yet he had a reputation as a man who enjoyed life as God had given it to him, that he enjoyed eating and drinking, that he enjoyed the very simple things of life, and I love it in that passage in Luke, after he finishes this dialogue, the next thing he does is he goes to dinner with a Pharisee. Uh, even though he has this tremendous task to change the world before him, he takes the time as he's on earth with us to eat and to drink and to enjoy those certain things that God has given him. And I think taking stock, again, I can't change uh, or, or control everything that happens in this world. Uh, if there is poor leadership, I can't necessarily have my way and switch that around. Um, certainly there are times for activity, as we see with Jesus confronting um, the, the money changers, confronting the Sanhedrin. But there are also those times where we just have to sit back. We have to acknowledge that we're not in control. We have to acknowledge we can't predict an uncertain world and enjoy what God has given us. And so that is the, the first piece of this advice, uh, just to enjoy those good things that God has given us, that we can't control everything. But then we have the second piece, which seems even more upfront and against the grain of our culture and against the, the, the grain of our instincts, is this idea of, of just not, not saying things. Don't criticize the, the leadership. Don't criticize um, the king. Just... Keep your mouth shut. That's what it seems to be saying. But again, we know that godly people in Scripture did confront things. Again, John the Baptist pointed out Herod's sin uh, with his sister-in-law. Jesus called him an old fox. So this can't be an absolute prohibition of ever saying anything or critical or, or, or constructive about uh, leadership because we have to understand the whole context of Scripture. But I do think what this is saying is that we have to be wise. We have to be wise with what we say, where we say it, who we say it to, how we say it, um, because there can be consequences for those things. 
I think a great example of this is social media. Uh, never in all of man's history have we invented something so ill-suited to rational discourse. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> and I think we've all seen numerous times where someone has uh, said something that later gets brought up in a tweet or Facebook or what have you, and that has consequences for them professionally, socially, um, so forth. And sometimes things that people have said are, are good and appropriate, um, but appropriateness is kind of key. You know, you have to be appropriate in your venue. You have to be appropriate um, in your tone. You have to be appropriate in how accurate what you're saying is. Um, and this really gives us wisdom to understand that we have to be wise with how we say things. You know, Jesus says to be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. And I think with our speech, especially about something like politics, um, we have to be wise. Uh, maybe it's not always good to just come crashing out the gate and ranting or, or anything like that. We have to, we have to uh, use wisdom. We have to use discretion. And understand that at times, even uh, when we do need to say things, that there are consequences. You know, John the Baptist was beheaded. Um, we have to understand that, and I think living in the uncertain world uh, we do, we have to be aware of those consequences, and we have to act wisely. And so I think that is what the teacher would speak to us, just about uncertainty in the political realm, to enjoy the certain things God has given us, and to be circumspect with our speech. Now, transitioning to chapter 11, we're, we're going to continue that theme of uncertainty, but not about politics, but really more about life in general. And you see, this section begins with uh, just a really odd phrase, cast your bread upon the waters and you'll find it after many days. Now, just reading that literally seems like pretty bad advice. I don't know why I'm throwing uh, bread and hoping it comes back soggy to me a few days later. Probably not going to eat that. <laughs> so what exactly is he getting at? Um, and I think just to put this into perspective, you know, sometimes there are figures of speech in a language or a culture that literally don't make sense. Um, just a great example in English is if you've ever acted, um, you know, break a leg. Why are you telling people to break their leg? That seems like an awful thing to do if you're on stage. Uh, but we all know that that just means good luck. There's no real literal connection to anything um, for that phrase. And so this phrase here um, really is just kind of a, a figure of speech, a proverb in ancient culture. Um, and what it's referring to is being generous. It's, it's being uh, generous with the potential that that could be reciprocated. So in ancient Egypt, there's a similar proverb. It says, do a good deed and throw it in the water. And when it dries, you'll find it. So just like break a leg, odd figure of speech means good luck here. Throwing bread to water, it means being generous and the potential that it returns. And so think of it this way. He's advising generosity and, and with this potential of return, it's sort of like in a one, It's a Wonderful Life, um, the Christmas movie, um, where the character George Bailey, he's you know, a very generous guy, he's a banker, he does all these good things, gets towards the tail end of the movie, he runs out of money, he meets an angel, but that part isn't really important for this. 
Um, and, uh, you know, when he's down on his luck, all the people he helped come and help him. Um, this is kind of what this proverb, this little statement is pointing out, that sometimes when you do that, um, definitely it can be returned. So he's saying to be generous, and he expands that even in the next verse, give a portion to seven or even to eight. So just pointing out, be generous generously, uh, give um, to many people. But at the end of verse two, we kind of see the, the flip side. So verse one, be generous. Generosity is going to come back to you. But verse two, at the end of it, he says, continuing with the idea of generosity, uh, that you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. So you can be generous in verse one and have a George Bailey experience. You can have generosity reciprocated. But you can also be generous and disaster can strike. Disaster can wipe out uh, the ability for people to, to help you, to be generous. Um, and so it's, it's not an ironclad guarantee. This isn't the prosperity gospel that you give and you get automatically. Um, you can very well be generous and nothing happened. Or your situation could, uh, rather than improve, it can go down. This is the uncertainty of life that we live. And yet, even in the midst of this uncertainty, what the teacher here is saying is to still be generous. To be generous even in the face of uncertainty, to take that risk that we know that it may work well or it may work poorly, but we are still to be generous. We are still to help those in need. And this really is the same advice that we're going to find from Jesus uh, later on, thousands of years later, when he speaks to his disciples. He tells them uh, in Luke 6.35, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. That the idea of generosity is not to give to get, but to give, not, don't even expect to get back, just, just give, just be generous and be kind. And I think the uncertainty that we see here in this passage, we do find some certainty later as the Bible unfolds, as Revelation goes forward, and we do find that Jesus goes on and he says, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So at this point, we're, we're now seeing God really enter the picture, and we know that as we go into the future of Revelation, that we see that being generous, even in the face of uncertainty, that is a reflection of the character of God, that that is a reflection of his goodness and generosity. And so it is good for us to be generous, even though we don't know the outcome. And this bringing God into it, uh, I mean, God's present throughout all of it, but really bringing God as a, a motive and a, a sort of way to understand things, we're really going to see come out in the next few verses. And so after this advice to be generous, we find that the teacher uh, seems to transition to speaking about things that do seem kind of certain. If you look up in the sky and you see dark clouds, you know it's going to rain. And we know that if a tree falls down, it's just going to lie there. Wherever it falls, it's going to lie there. Those seem pretty certain. Um, but 
just because we know the certainty that something is going to happen doesn't mean we can predict it. Um, certainly, it uh, will rain uh, when the clouds are full, but that doesn't mean we know when it's going to rain. And so in, in verse 4, we see, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. The, the teacher sets us up with this idea like, yeah, these things are certain. We know that a tree will fall. If it gets blown over by wind, we know that uh, rain is going to come from a full cloud. But if you're the person waiting for that perfect opportunity, uh, in this case, farming, um, just because you know those things are going to happen doesn't mean that you can predict when they're going to happen. And if you're waiting for that perfect moment, that perfect opportunity, if you're hoping to beat the uncertainty of the world, you're not going to wind up doing anything. You're not going to be able to beat or overcome uncertainty. That's not within our power as people. And so moving into to verse 5, we really see part of the reason why we can't beat that and part of the reason of, of or what we're supposed to do in light of that. And so just pointing to human ignorance, he says, you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones of, a womb, of a, the womb of a woman with child. You know, certainly with science, we have a better understanding of uh, human reproduction. But even in that case, we don't truly fully understand everything. We don't have a 100% understanding of how that happens. And this is analogous, ultimately, to the fact that we just don't fully understand the way and the work of God. And this is really the crux of the passage, is that we don't understand the uncertain world. We don't understand the outcome of everything that will occur. But what we do know is that God is behind it. God is sovereign. God is in control, and God knows the outcome. And so in response to admitting our ignorance, in response to, to realizing we can't beat the unpredictability, the uncertainty of the world, what are we to do? Well, in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In the face of uncertainty, we're not meant to be paralyzed, but we are meant to work. We are to be diligent. And diligent because we know that God is the one who is truly in control. And I think a great example of a, a person who was diligent knowing that God was in control um, was uh, Stonewall Jackson, a Confederate general. And just to preface this, uh, I was a little hesitant at using this example. Deeply, deeply flawed man. He owned slaves. He fought to preserve slavery. That is deeply immoral. That is inexcusable. Um, and I'm not trying to gloss over that. But even with a deeply flawed man, we can still see some lessons we can learn. And so Stonewall Jackson, uh, even in his flaws, he was a very diligent person, uh, very fearless in battle. And uh, he so impressed uh, his troops. Uh, another general uh, once asked him, you know, how is it that you're able to you know, be so brave in the face of combat? How is it that you're able to carry on your duties when, you know, bullets are flying everywhere? How are you able to do that? And, and this is what Mr. Jackson says. 
he says, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. For God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready no matter when it may overtake me. And another quote from him is, do your duty and let providence take care of the rest. You see, in the face of uncertainty, uh, this did not cause Mr. Jackson to uh, simply idle about and to um, just be paralyzed, but it gave him trust to do his work. It gave him trust to be diligent, not because he knew the outcome, but because he knew the person who controls the outcome. And that is where his diligence and his faith came from. And so for us today, in the face of uncertainty, we're not meant to be paralyzed, but we're meant to be people of hope, people who live trusting the Lord, uh, knowing that though the world is uncertain, our God is not uncertain, that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in politics. I don't know if I'm generous, whether I'm going to get that back or be in dire straits. I don't know whether it's going to rain today when I plant my crops or whether it's going to blow the seed away when it's windy. Um, But I do know that God is certain that God is in control. He is sovereign. And that gives me the confidence to do my work. That gives me the confidence to be diligent, to not be paralyzed, and to move forward. And so that is the advice, ultimately, that the preacher gives us here in Ecclesiastes. And if the band could come up as we prepare to transition to communion. Just want to review what this passage has taught us. The first thing is just the uncertainty of life, the uncertainty of politics, the uncertainty of generosity, the uncertainty of work even. And in the face of the first, the uncertainty of politics, uh, we can understand that even with poor leadership, um, we can enjoy those things that God has given us, food, friends, drink, and we know to be circumspect with our speech. When it comes to uh, being uh, generous, we know to be generous and diligent even in the face of uncertainty, and ultimately we know that we can uh, be diligent because God is in control. And so I just pray for you today that uh, as you go from here, that you would be willing to be diligent, to be generous, to be wise in your speech, uh, knowing that the outcome is not in your hands, but in the hands of our generous triune God.